Welcome to Good Game, your no BS insights for crypto founders. Let's use this time where everyone's not like hair on fire growing like crazy to say, is there any kind of technical debt, ecosystem debt that we should go, we should clean up so we have stronger foundations for that next leg up in growth? There's a number of things we can do. As you mentioned, Kane, like really siloing, isolating risk around specific assets, specific protocols, and then kind of growing that over time. These are all things that we can do. And I think there just hasn't been enough collective attention across our industry on these things because we were so first growth focused and then, oh man, we're just watching number go down, number go down and it's depressing. And I think the point is, well, it's not always going to be number go down, number will go up again. And so let's take this time to think carefully about how we're building. So when number does go up, we're ready to support it. And we can actually go out and make the case that this is financial infrastructure for the world. Looking for your next startup idea in crypto? Check out our request for startups list and get inspired at alliance.xyz forward slash ideas. Welcome to Good Game. We have two very special guests joining us today. One is uh, Dana Litzer, from Nascent, and second is Kane Warwick from Synthetics. And uh, what we want to dive deep into is Dan Alitzer's recent article about why DeFi is broken. He argued three fundamental points that make the attack vectors for protocols much higher than, than it should be. And the three areas that he pointed out was uh, smart contract upgradability, governance, um, and uh, oracles, oracle-less uh, narrative. And he thinks that those are like what's stopping DeFi from getting like hundreds of millions of users. And then the opposite side is Kane Warwick. And Kane Warwick fundamentally helped Chainlink build its first Oracle for DeFi. In fact, uh, if you read through the story, he also published an article where he talked about the story. And what he talked about was the fact that they had to run their own proprietary Oracles and they figured out quickly that people were front running and exploiting it. And so they worked with Chainlink to push out new Oracle systems for its own synthetics product. So two opposite like polar narratives, and uh, and so we brought these two guests to just kind of discuss and and see where where the underlying solution is and how founders should be thinking about the space moving forward. Chow, what do you think? How do you how do you feel about all this? I'm really excited about these two guests. Dan has been in this space for a very long time, and recently clearly thought very deeply about security and DeFi yeah. more so than I've done in the last couple of years. I read his article; it was very mm-hmm. thoughtful. I'm excited to talk to him because the Oracle problem and, you know, the governance problem and the contract up- upgradability problem, these are very abstract concepts to me. There have been a couple of hacks related to Oracles and gov- governance in the past. So, for example, the Mango hack, which we talked about in one of our earliest, earlier yeah. episodes, and the Euler hack, which happened uh, recently. Mm-hmm. But aside from these hacks... It's very hard for me to visualize exactly what the problem is between these three options, the three that he mentioned, right? Yeah, yeah. Th- these are very abstract yeah. concepts to me, by and large. So I want to understand his, his point of view on these things. I think he's basically trying to forecast something to the future that, as someday, DeFi will be broken again due to one of these problems. Yes. So I really want to understand his his point. It's not empirical. It's entirely a forecast, in my opinion. So I want to understand his yeah. point of view. And then Kane, 
needless to say, he's one of the mm-hmm. OGs of DeFi, has been has been building DeFi pretty much before yes. everyone else. Started building DeFi before DeFi was even yep. a thing. The term DeFi was invented in like 2019 or something. Yes. But he started building Haven and Synthetics since 2018. And so he has the actual practical understanding of how to build DeFi protocol. Uh, whereas on the other hand, Dan has more a, a broader mm-hmm. view of things as, as an investor. So Kane has this very concrete and practical views on things such as, like, for example, he, he, uh, he actually helped Chainlink become what Chainlink yep. is today by working with them in the early days because Synthetics needed an Oracle four years ago, but Chainlink wasn't yep. ready. So they worked very closely to turn Chainlink into what it is today. And also, Kane spent a long time thinking about how to transition himself from this benevolent dictator into a, a DAO governance kind of model for synthetics. So I also want, want to understand how he thinks about decentralized governance versus leadership by a CEO, yeah. like which one is better, right? So really excited about both of these. These are probably the two of the top five people I can think of to speak yeah. about DeFi today. Yeah, similarly, some of the points you mentioned that is very interesting for me is like, if you think about like Dan's article before Uniswap V2 became prevalent in terms of like liquidity pools, um, V1 was pretty good, but V2 was like what really set things off. Like, and we think about like composability within the DeFi ecosystem with LP positions and et cetera. Dan Elitzer kind of called that out pretty early. So Dan, historically, a lot of his articles really like kind of laid the foundation for what was going to happen in the future. And and I agree, I think like a part of this current article that he wrote is really forecasting what could happen. And so how can we mitigate all of the like issues today so that when we get to like 100 million users, these primitives can be self-sustaining in the long run? And he argued a couple of points, which we'll talk about in our conversation, but like the layered approach, which is like allow the, the security model to be concentrated on the app service, on the app surface versus the protocol surface. And so we'll talk about the layered, uh, layered approach, which, uh, which I, I, I tend to agree with. An example of that is, uh, Blend, yes. the lending protocol of Blur, which launched recently, and also Ashna, which is still fairly under the radar. Yep. But both of these Oracle-less designs have, uh, made the news recently with Blend actually becoming the number one lending protocol for yeah. NFTs. So I think a lot of people are very curious about these topics. So we're going to touch on them as well. And for Kane, um, the reason why I'm excited to speak to him is because it's the historical data that he has. I mean, it's all in his like cranium, right? Like, yeah. like if you read his like most recent article, he talked about like, look, you know, we started off with this thing and we just started to go after one goal after another. And then over time, it just became synthetics was what, what it is today. So, you know, yeah. when you're hitting these smaller goals and solving these problems from a macro perspective, you can't see what you're not doing, right? Like now that Dan brought up this issue about like primitives and how these external dependencies are becoming an issue, it is, right? And so uh, for us, it's like kind of unpacking what he went through historically and understanding like where are some of the mistakes that we've made and then areas how he mitigated those problems that, that synthetics went through early, in the early days. So I'm, I'm, I'm also very excited I strongly recommend every builder in this space to read Kane's article, whether or not you're in DeFi, yeah. because one of the key takeaways from his article was that he said something to the effect of, it seems like they made a lot of pivots yeah. and a lot of versions, that, synthetics versions that, that launched in the past, 
and some of the design decisions felt like mistakes in hindsight. However, every single one of these mistakes were unavoidable and they also led to new lessons about these things. And a lot of the decisions were due to the fact that the enabling technologies simply didn't exist. For example, Chainlink didn't exist in the early days. They couldn't even build a efficient derivative trading without front-running, without a good oracle. So my takeaway of that is building a product, especially in crypto, is extremely path-dependent. And it goes back to one of the earliest lessons that, that we talked about in our last episode, which uh, with, with the Tensor guys, which is that you have to stay, you have to survive long enough to get lucky because you have to sur- survive long enough for the enabling technologies to become mature enough yep. for your own product to succeed. So it's one of the most insightful yeah. articles I've ever seen from, from a founder in crypto. It also goes back to like our conversation with Ham- Amir Halim, the founder of Helium. You got to survive long enough and luck will play into the founder's future or the startup's future. And I think this is a very good pattern, right? Like if you are focused and you're lean, you know, there are opportunities for you to find a solution, right? To the problems that you're, you're incurring. It's just staying pet dependent and staying focused. All right. Well, I think this is a good summary into our conversation with Kane and, and Dan. So um, let's get them on. Welcome to Good Game. We have two uh, guests. Both have uh, done a lot for for crypto and DeFi. One is Dan Elitzer. If you know Dan, he was one of the main people behind the MIT purchase of Bitcoin back in the day. And then also the Superfluid article right before DeFi summer. And then the most recent article about why DeFi is broken. And obviously we have Kane, who started Haven Synthetics. And really, I would say the OG DeFi godfather, right? If you think about the liquidity mining program, or even if you read Kane's most recent article about how Synthetics, it's uh, Oracle that launched early on, it helped introduce that Oracle system to Chainlink and Chainlink started to use that as a way to drive its own business. And we'll talk a bit about that in a bit. But uh, before we get started, Chow, Dan, Kane, anything that you'd like to add before we kind of dive deep? Well, I mean, I guess I've heavily contributed to breaking DeFi, I suppose, right? Uh, based on the, the thesis of that um, post. So it'll be an interesting conversation, I guess. Definitely. Cool. So is DeFi broken? Uh, Dan, you mentioned primitives in and itself should have no external dependencies, right? And so you highlight three, right? One is contract upgradability, governance, and oracles. And so the question is, is it really broken? Like, is Oracle's a really like, and we'll start with Oracle's as an example. We've seen like, you know, a whole wave of startups that are building a space. You know, Ajna, who was a part of Alliance's last batch, that's building an Oracle's Oracle-less lending protocol. You have MetaStreet, you have, you know, Paradigm, uh, Blur Paradigms Blend, etc. that are starting to build around this design landscape. And the question really is, do we need Oracle's or can we use what we have today, right? Like, do we need oracles or not? That's like really the, the the impetus of the question here. Yeah, I would say first and foremost, yes, we do need oracles. I'm not at all arguing that oracles don't serve a very important role in DeFi, both in terms of how we've gotten to where we are today and in terms of what DeFi will grow and become in the future. What my article is trying to make the case for is that There's currently a lot of protocols that like to style themselves as primitives in that they say, hey, we're composable. 
you can build other things on top of us. Mm-hmm. And what I was proposing is that we really should be a little bit more specific in what we consider as a primitive versus just a composable protocol, right? One of the beauties of DeFi is that pretty much everything is composable. Uh, but for a primitive, I think we need to say, okay, what exists at the lowest level? And it's it's hard to say something is at the lowest level if it has meaningful external dependencies. And so if you can upgrade the contract via either administrative privileges or via governance, you need to think about all sorts of risk models around how those upgrades can happen, that they can change basically everything about the protocol. Mm-hmm. Um, if you uh, have an Oracle, you need to think very carefully about how is that Oracle functioning? What is the risk model for that Oracle? What are the tolerances in terms of both the timeliness and the accuracy of the data being fed in by that Oracle? There's just so many other things that you need to be thinking about. And so I think it is very helpful if we have an increasing number of things that we really can think of as primitives that anybody can build on top of and that we can be, I would say, have a higher degree of confidence in terms of the security of those contracts because there are less external dependencies that we need to think about. And so therefore, they become the base on top of which a lot of other things are built. It sounds to me like just, you know, a Web3 version of platform risk, right? Like the platform risk discussion, right? Like, you know, should you build on Meta or Facebook or Instagram? Should you, you know, when they can rug you pretty easily and, you know, change their APIs or, you know, change their terms or whatever, right? And in an ideal world, you don't build on platforms that are not open or, you know, at least where you don't have a level of confidence that, you know, the thing that you're building is, is going to get rubbed. I mean, we've got a, a similar situation happening now with ChatGPT, right? There's a whole bunch of people who are building products, right? You know, like jamming ChatGPT into like some existing product or like some, some you know, existing category of product, right? And we don't know what OpenAI is going to do with ChatGPT and their APIs and, you know, whatever in, in like a month, let alone, you know, a year or, or whatever downstream. So I, I think, and, and I, you know, I've thought about platform platform risk a lot. I've I've talked about it in in some of the articles that I've written. You know, even Ethereum has a level of platform risk, right? Like people forget, but you know, like Ethereum is an upgradable system, right? And we had an issue. I think it was Kyber, if I remember correctly, back in like 2018. There was an EIP that was going to like break a whole bunch of stuff, and they were like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa!" Like, does anyone talk to the people building? smart contracts and like core devs like way people are building smart contracts like what are you talking about um and so you know there was there was this like sense of like oh yeah sorry guys we didn't even you know think to mention that this was like a breaking change right um and eventually got sorted out but like on some level the world is a platform and the world is not static and like you know you always have to accept some level of risk for building a platform and hoping to get to a point where like there's minimal platform risk, I think, is an ideal. Um, but I think in reality, for most people, you just need to weigh up the options of, of what you're doing and what the trade-offs are and, and kind of accept that there's always going to be some level of platform risk and you just try to minimize it. Yeah, I think I think that's that's a fair analog. Like there's, I think, a lot of similarities with platform risk here. I think the angle that I was approaching this from is really more from a, a security mindset, though, right? And so the the difference being like, hey, can an, an upgrade or change of rules make a product non-functional? That's bad. Can that result in a loss of funds? That's even worse, right? And so I, th- yeah. I think we 
it's helpful to have a little bit of distinction there, but I do agree that like there's there's a great deal of overlap between dependencies from a security perspective and dependencies from a like product platform perspective. Well, I mean, you know, again, like I feel like security is a subset of platform risk, right? Like if you're inheriting your security from something you're building on, right? Like we inherit our security from Ethereum, right? Ethereum recently decided to like change its, you know, like consensus mechanism, right? And so we all inherited that change, whether we liked it or not, right? And so like, yes, on some level, you know, security is a really critical thing for smart contracts. But in my view, security is when you build on something else, security is just a subset of the different things that you're inheriting from that platform. Fair. I I want to dig a little bit deeper into this topic of security and how we can potentially solve security by removing oracles. I have a couple of questions. The first question is, is, is super straightforward. Um, Dan, you, you talk a lot about how removing security, or, or you talk about you talk a lot about the importance of security. But what are some of the very concrete examples of recent hacks in DeFi, or hacks or exploits or attacks that were results of uh, of oracles? Well, I think that it's important to differentiate between things where the oracle was broken or things where there's been like price manipulation that gets tied in uh, with the fact that then there there is an oracle involved, right? So we look at, for example, um, you know, things that happen with like mango markets and, and the attacks there that in theory, the same like theoretical attack was possible on Compound and Aave as well. And it was not due to the oracle being faulty, it was due to the fact that the market could be manipulated and the way these protocols were functioning, it could lead to loss of funds. So again, I don't, I'm not arguing that we should not use oracles at all. The case was, I think it's it leads to a very interesting design space when you design on top of primitives that the primitives themselves don't have oracles. In most cases, you will want to pull in some sort of oracle on top. Right. And even just from a pure UX perspective, if you think about managing positions on UniV3, right, there's very few people who are going to go in there and who are going to manually update positions. And so they've turned to, uh, was like Arrakis and Gamma and a bunch of other things to manage positions. Synthetics has, has, you know, similar things built on top to enable people to more easily manage some of the positions that they're opening and closing there too. So. I think this is a pretty well-established thing. And I think it's interesting when you can design protocols to not need them at the base layer, even if there will be various services built on top that use them in some form or fashion. So in, in the case of Mango, right? Just curious what you think exactly. Because in the, in the case of Mango, I think the hack was due to the protocol using super illiquid assets as collateral for people to, to do trading and margin trading. Is your position, I'm curious, both Dan and, and Kane, but is, yeah. is your guys' position that Mango should not use a, an Oracle at all, meaning they should design a system that's Oracle-less, or should they have avoided using those illiquid assets as collateral, but while it's okay to use Oracles in this particular case? There's multiple ways you, you could have avoided that, right? Like don't, don't use illiquid assets or cap them, or th there's like, there's all sorts of levers 
that they had to pull, as we saw then with both Compound and Ave, kind of like quickly pushing through changes through their governance to reduce the risk from some of the kind of longer tail assets that they were including in their pools. I do think that it is possible on top of Ajna or other protocols that are built to not have oracles as part, you can rebuild the pooled lending uh, experience that you have from a Mango Markets or a Compound or an Aave. The one thing that I don't ha- don't have a good solution to rebuild there is allowing for cross-margin in the system that you would build on top. Uh, and that if you actually look at a lot of usage that you're seeing of these lending pools today, there's not a ton of people making use of meaningful amounts of cross-margin. So I think there are some users for whom that is an absolute requirement and they'll want that. But I think there's uh, a larger set of users that would benefit from the increased security of having isolated markets that are then uh, pulled together in, I would say, risk-adjusted vaults to rebalance between the isolated markets. So we'll see folks like Oasis and DeFi Saver and others who are kind of building tools on top. So yes, you can recreate a mango markets that would enable use of some of these long-tail assets, but not expose all users of the protocol to that risk. They could opt out of exposure to specific assets or more more clearly opt into only the risks that they would want to be exposed to. You know, I think the first thing I should probably point out is my career is predicated on using illiquid assets for collateral. So I would have to say I'm probably in the pro camp, unfortunately, on that one. Um, (laughs) But, uh, you know, I think siloing risk and removing oracles are are sort of, you know, two approaches to the the same thing, right? Like realistically, right? Like synthetics right now operates like this, right? Like every asset's in a giant pool, you know, it only takes one asset to fail. So one oracle failure will, you know, cascade through the entire system and, and, you know, make the entire system insolvent, which is not ideal. And so what we've done in synthetics v3 is to basically silo these things, right? And then even within the system, we can then recombine them into larger markets if people want an easy cross-margin experience we say okay well these are all the assets that are you know deeply liquid you know bitcoin ethereum you know etc and and we can sort of recombine them in a a higher layer to allow people to have that same experience that they have now just trading in, in and out between them and leveraging the same margin and you know not worrying about all of that stuff but if something's really liquid then we're going to silo it off right but we still use an oracle but we just keep that cauterized. So if that oracle blows up or if the asset blows up or something goes to zero or whatever, you know, so I think both of those are risk mitigating approaches that you can have. But, you know, regardless, if you've got a liquid assets, you probably should be siloing them. You shouldn't, you shouldn't have them all in a giant pool. Absolutely. And I think, you know, that ties to when I, you know, DeFi is broken is very much like trying to, an attention grabbing headline, right? I think DeFi has grown tremendously, right? We've, we've, we've all been, been around to see this growth from basically nothing to where it is today. And that is tremendous growth. And obviously something is working to be able to get it to this stage. And I, I think the case that I'm making is more that the DeFi that we have today is not the DeFi that is going to be able to get to global mainstream adoption because we have not done enough of these risk mitigation approaches. We've been thinking about like bootstrapping usage and doing everything we can to grow the ecosystem. And I think we're at a point where we, again, we've all been through bear markets before, where bear markets are a great time to step back and reflect and say, hey, are we building 
this the right way? Like, are we going to get another like step function increase in users tomorrow? Like, probably not. Let's use this time where everyone's not like hair on fire growing like crazy to say, is there any kind of technical debt, ecosystem debt that we should go, we should clean up so we have stronger foundations for that next leg up in growth? And so the ideas I, I covered in that piece were just a few ideas. There's a number of others that we'll be, we'll be writing about and circling around things like thinking intelligently about circuit breakers around kind of multi-party guardian contracts, things that can tie into both account abstraction wallets and existing kind of EOA style wallets, things around upping the security spend that we have, tying it more closely to bounties, more closely to value at risk. There's a number of things we can do. As you mentioned, Kane, like really siloing, isolating risk around specific assets, specific protocols, and then kind of growing that over time. Um, these are all things that we can do. And I think there just hasn't been enough collective attention across our industry on these things because we were so first growth focused and then, oh man, we're just watching number go down, number go down and it's depressing. And I think the point is, well, it's not always going to be number go down, number will go up again. And so let's take this time to think carefully about how we're building. So when number does go up, we're ready to support it. And we can actually go out and make the case that this is financial infrastructure for the world. I feel like another reason why we haven't really paid attention as an industry to, to these security loopholes is that I just feel like, of course, there has been so many hacks, but there has not been enough hacks for, for us to care about things enough. The Mango hack, it's a hack that happened multiple times. Mango was not even the first one. The same hack happened in many protocols. But in terms of this other example that, that came that you, you brought up, that, that if one oracle fails, it would cascade into the rest of the protocol. Is there any concrete example of, of this type of incidents? There's an example that happened in synthetics. It actually happened to us. The ETH Oracle, when we were running our own Oracles before uh, we switched to Chainlink, I get my years wrong because I'm too old these days, but I feel like this was like July of 2019 or something like this, maybe June of 2019. The Our centralized Oracle failed. And basically the price of Korean won changed and someone was trading between Korean won and ETH. And so the ratio of Korean won to ETH was so extreme that they ended up with like 11 billion synthetic ETH or something like that, right? It was you know, some crazy number, right? Um, and so the protocol was totally insolvent. And that led to a whole series of consequences. But like this has happened, like it cascaded through. The whole protocol was insolvent, basically, um, because of one account that had, you know, whatever it was at that time, probably $11 billion or something like that, you know? This was like Synthetics V1 or something? Yeah, this is Synthetics V1. This is like right, this is in the first like four months after we launched it, I think. In March. Yeah, March. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, we've seen that happen. And it's not great, obviously. Um, but one of the things that, you know, upgradability, you know, I've written a lot about this, right? Upgradability and the fact that um, if you build something that is designed to kind of launch and just exist, and, and operate into the future and it's not upgradable, it can't be iterated on or whatever, the likelihood of that working is like zero, right? We have like very few examples, like Uniswap is one, and even Uniswap is kind of not one because, you know, there's been iterations of Uniswap, but obviously it was not upgradable contracts. It, it just happened to be a class of 
contract where you could deploy new markets and it kind of wasn't that impactful to get people to switch liquidity from one market to another. And so, you know, it didn't require some huge, you know, um, they didn't have a token at the time either. So that helps as well, right? The token wasn't involved in any, any you know, kind of interaction with the protocol. It was all just LPs, right? So, you know, LPs had to go and upgrade their LP tokens to new markets, but whatever. Um, every, almost every other example that I can think of of someone who, you know, some project that built something in that style failed, right? Because it's really hard to get something right and allow the market to test it. And, you know, so I do have like a fundamental philosophical, I guess, point of difference, I suppose, in terms of just this, like making things that are immutable and hoping that they work, right? I think that's a very challenging thing to do. Well, I think there's a question about the level of immutability. I think you're you're right about Uniswap, but even look at like Compound and Aave, have, while they both are upgradable with their their current versions, right? They're both on V3 now, and they've had to migrate LPs like manually go from V1 to V2 to V3. And so Uniswap is not the only proto- like meaningful protocol that's had to encourage users to migrate over, like opt into a new version as opposed to unilaterally do it via governance, right? Sure, yeah. I, I do see your point that like there are certain constraints that come with doing something immutably. And I don't think that there are very many, if any, protocols that, you know, you can deploy today and people are still going to be primarily using that contract a decade from now. Um, I think, but I do think that one of the things that you get from this and that Uniswap very much got from this and some of these other ones got to lesser extents, but it's also meaningful is when you're at least limiting the scope of what can be upgraded and what can be done there, you already cut off certain amounts of attack surface, right? The the fewer things that can be upgraded, the fewer things you have to kind of worry about that could potentially go wrong. And so I think there is the extreme version of saying, hey, here is a, a complete primitive, no upgradability, no external dependencies. It is what it is. And we'll move everybody over to something new if there's any meaningful change that needs to be made. And then there's, okay, well, maybe we have governance and we will be willing to swap in a different Oracle system or a different like interest rate curve or something like that. Like there are limited things that you want to be able to do. I mean, even uh, just like parameterization right. of markets, right? Like in the exactly. example of and Compound, right? Like they weren't immutable. Like you, you know, you had the ability yeah. to make changes to the markets and stuff, so... Yeah, I do think fundamentally, though, I'm very interested in protocol designs where there's less parameterization that needs to be done, and then there can be more market forces determining that, or people basically permissionlessly deploying their own version with their own parameters that then people can opt into the parameters they like the best. And it's hard when we're in a very expensive, like high high gas fee environment where kind of aggregation across multiple pools or multiple markets can be very expensive. Uh, but assuming that we are over time moving to places where it's going to be cheaper to access block space and, and the compute that's needed, the cost will go down. That I think opens up a lot more room for these types of designs where you don't need to permission certain parameters, permission pool deployment, permission different versions of the same pool getting deployed, like Uniswap having like the different 
fee sizes, right? They could yeah. just say, hey, any fee size, deploy whatever you want. But they had to, they wanted to concentrate at the time because of they were course, so worried about liquidity yeah. fragmentation across yeah. all these different pools. I think now we've seen that liquidity tends to collect around certain points anyway. And mm. so I, I don't know if knowing what we know now, if the Uniswap team or others would have felt the need to make a similar choice with constraints, trying to force consolidation around very specific fee tiers. Yeah, that's fair. I, I think there's another component for me, which is that like a lot of us had this idea, right? And I'm sure I've like explicitly stated this, that like, okay, we just need governance for a while to like figure out, you know, the challenges and then like eventually we'll get it right and then we'll hand it over. Just one more hit, I swear, yeah. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Um, And I think, you know, probably sometime in the last couple of years, I've come to the conclusion that like markets and, you know, the environment that you're operating in is ever-changing, right? Like you're never going to have a stable environment in which to deploy this immutable, beautiful thing. Even if you iterated on it for a decade and you're like, okay, like this is finally the thing, right? Like something will happen, you know, something about the world will change and you'll need to be able to respond to that. And if you have cut old bridges and, you know, like even to the level of like, okay, you can only change like in synthetics, right? Let's say we get to a point where we say, okay, we're giving away all of the control except for the ability to change parameters. Anyone can deploy a market and then those parameters and the parameters are constrained and that's it, right? I guarantee you 10 minutes later, someone will deploy something and we'll be like, oh man, we didn't think about that. And now we need to like, oh, what the fuck are we supposed to do here, right? Like I guarantee you that will happen. So there is a point, I guess, of like operating the real world where I've just come to the conclusion that like, what you actually need is robust upgradability and we need more Lindy on the upgrade processes and governance, which, you know, is another area that I think hasn't had enough investment in, right? And enough testing. Everyone's, you know, a lot of people still running around with Gnosis safes and snapshot, right? Like we can do better. Um, and so, you know, if that, if that process were more robust and we've had more confidence in that, then it would allow for kind of safer iteration and, and you know, the ability to, um, you know, pretend it, but it like philosophically is a different, it's a fork, right? Like you're going in one direction versus another. I think the beautiful thing is we can run both experiments in parallel, right? I think we all, we all just agree. We need fewer protocols, fewer users getting wrecked. And one way to do it is be a lot more stringent around the upgrade process with existing things. The other thing is like, hey, what does it look like if we remove all the ability to upgrade and we kind of build from that as a starting point? And we can run these in parallel. And that's, I think, the one of the things that's so exciting and beautiful about crypto is that we don't need to ask permission. If, if you've got this vision for this is the best way to do, do it, and I've got a vision for this is the best way to do it, we can both run it and and, and see where, where users migrate. Um, and so I think that's that's great. And I'm excited to see it. Yeah, I agree on that for sure. Well, you said earlier, you want to see us move to a world where there's less parameterization and more market forces. That comment reminded me of Uniswap V3 versus V2. It also reminded me of Blend, the lending protocol of Blur. And it also also reminded me of Ashna. Since these are pretty hot topics recently, maybe give our audience a um, an overview of how these oracle-less, market-force-driven lending platforms work? Sure. So they're all a little bit different in terms of how they do things, but one of the unifying factors here in the way that they do that is that there's usually a, uh, there's a collateral asset and there's a quote asset. 
And so the person who's willing to lend an asset, say USDC, will say, hey, here is the amount of collateral in terms of number of units of this other asset that I expect to be there for each one unit of my quote asset of USDC that I'm willing to lend. And they're essentially implying a belief about the price in dollars or relative value for that piece of collateral and the point at which they would expect this loan to be liquidated either by themselves or by a third party that is incentivized in some way. I think I know the answer to this, but I'm curious what you think. It sounds like Blur and Ajna, they both replace the, the dependency on oracles with dependency on market participants, basically the liquidators. Liquidators are also needed in, in traditional protocols that, that have oracles as well. So that piece isn't necessarily different. What might be more different is needing to, I would say, monitor and update the terms of your loan, either for the existing loan, maybe you're not going to renew it if it's a term loan, or if it is a kind of perpetual loan, then like updating the kind of ticks that you're lending within uh, in the case of, of Ajna. But what I would say is for all of these protocols that, that you've described, like right, Blur's, Blur's Blend, Ajna, and uh, you mentioned Uni V3, I think as well, all of these things, if you think about what they're doing, they're moving further away from a broad spectrum kind of like automated system like AMM or just pooled with with a, a single interest rate curve to something that is more akin to an order book. Yep. And they're designed in a way that has some of the kind of automation or kind of guardrails for thinking and uh, about how to how to structure things that are reminiscent of the earlier versions of AMMs and pooled products, but they're moving closer to order books. And I think ultimately order books are actually an efficient end state. And we needed to use these broad spectrum AMMs and just automated models generally and pooled models generally as a way of bootstrapping the ecosystem to where it is today. But if you look at where you're getting, and I would say, you know, trading is, is more advanced than lending in this regard. But if you look at how the DEX markets have evolved, we're starting to see a lot of the spot markets move to have RFQ systems being inserted into things like Xerox's API and Matcha and, and OneInch, where they're actually getting closer and closer back to order books. We still can't do fully on-chain efficient order books that work, but the markets are maturing to a place where I have no doubt that that is where the majority of the volume is ultimately going to land, even in these this decentralized exchange context and decentralized lending context will be order book like models, we will not leave AMMs behind, we will not leave pooled models behind, but they will likely be constituted on top of underlying order book like systems. And then you'll just have the the automated kind of or pooled models that will provide a user experience option for less sophisticated players who want to opt into that. While professionals, big firms who want to do it, can more get closer to the metal, so to speak, and be able to access the order books directly. I think one challenge with this, right, is there's like, a you know, sort of presupposes a level of sophistication on both sides, right? And in the case of Blend, for example, I know we saw a little bit of like adversarial behavior here, but I would argue, thanks fucking God that we're in a bear market because the amount of people that would have gotten wrecked <laughs> by Blend if we yeah. were not in a bear market would have been 
astronomical. It would have been insane, right? Yeah. Because in an inefficient market on the lending side, right, the ability for people to like create these kind of lending traps and then the ability for people to take those lending traps and then go and YOLO into something else and look left. I mean, we saw what people did with Compound when they were yield farming, you know, recycling dye into, you know, whatever, right? Like people will do crazy stuff when the incentives are there. Thankfully, we didn't have those incentives. And so I think that, you know, it was pretty minimal. But there is an assumption of sophistication on on the part of both parties in a in a you know arcless lending protocol for example which maybe is fair enough like maybe that's a fair enough assumption that like someone who wants to borrow against an nft should but like on paper it is like of course on paper it's like yeah someone who's borrowing against an nft should have a level of sophistication to understand what they're doing but we all know in reality that that is certainly at the moment not the case i guess the case i'd make is that it's there's going to be kind of the safe options or the lower risk options that can be built on top of those models. And so, yeah, if you want to like degen YOLO yourself, like, yeah, that's always going to be risky. But mm -hmm. if you want to go to something that's like, hey, we're never going to lend at more than like a 50% uh, collateral factor here, right? Like you can opt into that. You're not going to earn as much as someone who's willing to like go to like 95%, but yeah. the option will exist and you can still build that lower risk experience on top of these markets. Yeah. Going back to um, the Oracle conversation. So it seems like the consensus here is that, you know, obviously Oracles are needed, but it should, at least from your perspective, Dan, you're saying that it should be in a layered approach, right? So maybe you can add Oasis or others are building on top of these primitives that can offer your kind of your, your bring your own Oracles. But I do think there are still some issues with oracles today as it is. Kane, you mentioned in your article uh, the push versus pull kind of thesis where you first started with push, then pull became even more important. But it started out that, you know, you had people front running the price feed and you're getting, you know, people that are exploiting the price within the synthetics platform. And so you recently launched an approved SIP 279, which added oracle price and premium. So it is a way to kind of mitigate that. So I guess yeah. the question I'm saying, I'm asking here is, like, are we happy with our current Oracle design systems? And if not, where do we want to be in order for DeFi to be, as Dan mentioned, to get to billions of users? Well, you know, I, I kind of made a joke about this in the article, right? Like, yeah. um, someone came along and decided, like, build a new Oracle. And I thought that we decided that chain the competitors were dead in the water, you know, many years ago, right? And <laughs> I think we're the innovation has probably been has been moving away from oracles completely it's been this kind of binary thing it's been like okay we're either going to do oracles which is chain link obviously or we're going to you know try and like create some oracleless design right most of the 2017 to 2019 era oracles are, are kind of gone and then you know we had this new oracle provider pop up who was coming from I guess a bit more of a, a TradFi background with you know different set of constraints and, and what have you coming from I guess the Solana ecosystem primarily and you know just <laughs> saying like hey we're going to try and do something different right like this is going to be a different approach and so I think fundamentally competition is good right you know if Chainlink is a monopoly on oracles in DeFi that's probably not a good thing like I think there's a lot of reasons why Chainlink kind of won that battle, why, why they dominated the market so effectively for such a long time. But I do think competition is good, right? I don't think that you know, we want a competitionless market. And so that will force everyone to get better if there are alternative approaches to Oracles, right? And I include Oracle-less designs as well. Like if Oracle-less designs 
become so good, well, then oracles will need to respond and be like, okay, well, what are the trade-offs that we have from oracles? Is it security? Is it like, you know, some assumptions around trust, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, how do we make these designs more trustless? Or how do we make the incentives better? You know, but in absence of that kind of market forces and, um, you know, uh, the pressure that you have from competition, you can kind of just rest on your laurels and be like, no, no, we've got this, no problem, right? So I do think that, like, it makes sense for us to foster competition as much as possible, no question. Can you mention the front-running problem in your article? Can you explain to our audience what is the front-running problem? Yeah, so when you take some information about an off-chain asset, let's say gold, right? So you got the price of gold, right? So the world has some consensus price of gold that it's got somehow, right? Um, you know, across all the different markets that it's it's trading, you know, whether it's paper gold or spot gold or OTC or whatever, right? And it's pretty accurate. You know, this, the spread's pretty tight, right? There's a lot of gold trading and we kind of have a sense of you know what's going on. How do we tell Ethereum, which doesn't have a clue what gold is, right? Ethereum, the network, doesn't know what gold is. How do we tell it what this thing is and what the price is, right? Like, how do we how do we let it know, right? And the solution that we have now is we get a whole bunch of people to read the price of gold from the world, to go out and, and pull that price of gold from somewhere, uh, get together through some consensus mechanism to make sure that they all agree on what the price is, right? And then having agreed, there's you know some system, to off-chain system to get them to agree. They then push that price into the network. And now we know the price, right? And just inherently in that process of the world deciding the price, a group of people getting together, observing that price, working out amongst themselves if they all agree on what the actual price is and then pushing it in there, there's latency, right? There's just an amount of time that it takes for us to get the world's price onto Ethereum, right? And then Ethereum has its own block times, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, this can take 30 seconds, 40 seconds or whatever. And so what you have is a situation where there is a stale price, effectively, the last round price of gold, right? And if the price of gold moves significantly in a 10, 20, 30 second window for some reason, right? Then the update to get the new price on chain, you know, needs to be as quick as possible, but it's never going to be as fast as someone just observing the world, right? Independently and, and looking at the price of gold and saying, oh, wait, okay, it was $2,000 an ounce. Now it's $2,500 an ounce. I'm going to go and trade on this old stale price, right? That's on Ethereum. And Ethereum only knows that price. So anything that's reading that price from that article, the price is $2,000. Everyone on Ethereum at that moment thinks that the price is $2,000 until this process updates it to $2,500. And so that opportunity is basically the for someone to come and trade against that stale price, right? And front run the update of the price. And you know you can compress this down a lot, down to like seconds, right? But it's still not gonna be fast enough. And so the solution is to, rather than reading that price off-chain to say, anyone who wants to trade on the price of gold, we've got a price at the moment, it's $2,000, but if you want to trade on the price of gold, you actually need to go out and ask for the price over here, right? Which you'll get $2,500 now because that's the new price. And then you roll up that transaction and you push it in yourself and you say, hey, I've got the latest price of gold, I can prove it. And then you send that onto the network and the network goes, yep, you did prove that you got the latest price of gold. Here you go. That, that's the this answer. is the, the pull uh, versus yeah. push model. The, the push this model the has a latency of 30 seconds, but the pull model basically get the latest price. You get the latest price. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Got it. And the reason why you couldn't do this before was because um, the, the time, right? Stupidity. 
Mainly we're idiots. I don't know. Um, like, you know, <laughs> we, we had an idea of doing that, but the design of synthetics at the time was not about like fast trading, right? It wasn't about like, you know, low latency trading. It was about like a bunch of spot tokens that basically represent the price of these different assets that you could trade in between. Like yeah. the whole design of the system, the intent even behind the system was, was very different. The story, not the whole story of synthetics, but like part of the story of synthetics has been like finding all the different ways that oracles can be abused and, and yeah. then like having to like patch that. Right. Exactly. Like I think, yeah. I think the first time I even heard of the concept of front running oracles or back running oracles was, was from synthetics because there were users who like had figured this out and were exploiting. It was like, Oh, shoot, we need to like close that door. And there's, there's different approaches that you can take. But as you, as you said, like, inherently blockchains are like slower than non-blockchains, right? The, the rest yeah. of the world. And yeah, so yeah. in that latency, there's always going to be these kind of arbitrage opportunities. And so trying to like pretend those don't exist and hand wave them away doesn't work. You need to design with the assumption that like, A, we're going to try to minimize those things, but then B, to the extent we can't minimize them, we need to make sure that it's really, really hard, if not impossible, to exploit them within our yeah, system. Exactly. And, you know, like ultimately what was synthetics for the first like four years of existence, it was like a giant honeypot for like testing Oracle latency, right? It was like a giant pool of money that anyone could access if they could find a way to like break this Oracle design. And, you know, it was this iterative game of like, okay, someone broke it in that way, let's fix it. Someone broke it in this way. You know, people would do like off-chain centralized exchange, you know, manipulation, then they do on chain manipulation, then they'd like do some combinate, like it was, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff. And so it was just this continuous game, you know, most people would not be crazy enough to like actually connect the pot of money to the thing and be like, look, have, you know, go nuts. But thankfully, I guess it was maybe a public good on some level of synthetics to do that. So why not use uh, Uniswap TWAP? So there are issues with Yeah, <laughs> so, you know, there's, <laughs> there's issues. It, yeah, yeah there's like, one of the designs that we got to was actually using like a hybrid Oracle, right? Using, um, you know, Uniswap TWAP plus an off-chain Oracle as a way of like validating the price. And look, you know, TWAP Oracles got better over time. The original TWAP Oracle was, you know, kind of subject to a little bit of, I guess, uncertainty around like if someone was trying to manipulate the price. I think the TWAP Oracles are, are better now, but you have to remember that there's, and this is one of the, Oracle-less kind of design constraints is you need a liquid market to generate the information that you want. So like TO Oracles on, you know, ETH, USDC, sure, right? But yeah. like we, at, at one point, I'm sure we did this, right? Like, you know, someone will kill me if we didn't, but I'm sure we did. Just assumed that the TWAP price of USDC ETH, which I think was the most liquid, you know, ETH to USD market was one, right? And then USD see DPEG. Now, had we still been using that same Oracle design, I think we probably would have had a problem there because how do we know? Yeah. It's one to, you know, it's a ratio of two things, right? Like, how do we know that the one to one ratio thing, you know, we need another Oracle to go and make sure that like USDC to USDT to, you know, what, like, what if that DPEG, like it just, you go down a rabbit hole of like challenges when you start designing these systems and you try and make them robust to, to any kind of failure mode if they are fully on chain and, and, you know, um, and there is no off chain arbiter of reality. 
And there's an inherent trade-off in terms of these TWAP oracles also, right? In terms of if you want to be like highly accurate, up-to-date on this, you need to have a very short look-back window, but then it's more easily manipulated, so you use a longer look-back yeah. window, but then it's not as accurate of a price to where you are today, which is really bad if you're doing like high amounts of leverage, right? So like, there, there's, there's right. some, some there's some trade-offs yeah. there. Trade-offs all the way down, and like, there's like not fundamentally, I think, a way that you can solve that with TWAP oracles. So mm. they they kind of hit a limit at one point. But I think to your point, though, what, what's exciting to me about the potential in the future where we're headed is that we're talking right now, like one of the reasons why I think synthetics has been so exciting to so many people is because the universe of assets that exist off chain is so much larger than the universe of assets that sits on chain. And even the, the assets that are traded both on chain and off chain, usually there is a larger market. The primary market sits off chain on an exchange. And what's exciting to me is that we're now getting to a place where there is an increasing number of assets where the primary market is on chain. And as we get to the place where the primary market is on chain, the on chain market, that is the price that is determining the price, right? Yeah. And, and the people trading off chain are looking at the on chain market to decide, oh, what's, what's the price that I should try to trade at update on this off chain market. And so I, I'm very, very excited to see like how things evolve and what becomes possible when we start having more primary markets for assets that matter that exist on chain. Agreed. And, you know, I mean, gold is, is probably a good example of this, right? So, you know, let's say you've got a gold asset and we had this before, right? Like Digix did this, you know, where it's just wrapped gold um, as a token, right? If you imagine Digix had kept going, right? And there had been demand for holding this asset, which probably, you know, like, so it's funny, right? Like you shut something down and then immediately it be, you know, has the utility, right? Um, and so that's why you don't shut things down. But like, you know, let's say today Digix still existed and, you know, there was wrapped gold or whatever. You can imagine a scenario where, like, there's a deeply liquid, you know, Digix token that I think was um, it was an ounce, maybe, or I can't remember if it was an ounce or a gram, but like a gram of gold to eat, right? And like, there's a deeply liquid Uniswap V3 market there, and all of a sudden, like, you kind of have like a gold price to some extent, right? That might be deeply liquid enough that it's hard to manipulate and it's arbitraged out like really quickly by like you know off-chain people trading in the paper gold market or whatever, like you can imagine that scenario. So it's not, you know, obviously there's trust assumptions in the people holding the gold token, but as long as you have some kind of circuit breakers, right, to your earlier point, right, yeah. then it's probably okay. But there's there's also right, a lot of trust assumptions in the trading of gold in, in non-like blockchain markets, right? <laughs> so, so people aren't like going to the market primarily and like assessing the price of gold by trading like gold bullion for for currency, right? And so yeah. there is that. So we can, I think the the even more like further in the future version of that is not that there's deeply liquid markets, it's that the majority of the gold trading market exists on chain. Like for sure. that's yeah. that's the future that I'm like, that's like the the pie in the sky, man, wouldn't it be amazing if we get there someday like version. But like, you know, even on some fundamental level, if you think about it, right, like given, you know, what are the, and I've been thinking a lot about this lately, right? Like what are the current constraints or impediments or, you know, points of friction for a user who wants to trade gold, right? That makes trading spot gold, you know, a paper gold market better than trading it on Ethereum. And I think we all know, like there's definitely, there's friction there, right? There's impediments. But one of the impediments is not that they're trading real gold. Right. Like that's not an impediment, right? Like they're trading a <laughs> yeah. piece of paper that says like there's gold in a, you know, 
warehouse somewhere that they can maybe turn up and get access to, right? So that's not one of like people are already doing this with a level of trust that you know this thing represents gold. So turning the piece of paper that they're trading in a you know a database into a token is not like a, a crazy leap of faith there, right? It's just how do we get those people connected to those markets and you know allow allowed to even trade there is one challenge, you know. But like in terms of from a trader's perspective, knowing that you're like operating this permissionless 24-7 market, that just inherently sounds better as a trader, right? You're like, well, I'd much rather be there than some weird counterparty thing with all this collateral and whatever. Like, you know, just let me trade and, and know what the price is. So, you know, I think I think we could get there. It's not like, wouldn't it be nice well, if we had like regulators that encourage the development of these products? <laughs> yeah. Digix probably would have been sued out of existence if they tried yeah. to keep going. Oh, yeah. Fair, so. oh, yeah. <laughs> Ken, you talked about Pith, right? As the other Oracle provider that came in. Yeah. Um, but interesting enough, there's some interesting points to, to your article that you, you, you talked about, which is uh, you weren't too happy with V1 when you left, right? And then you came back and, you know, obviously V2, uh, we're seeing great traction and success. You wanted to continue using Chainlink because they've been a great provider for the past four years. But the DAO, you know, had a governance vote and they voted for someone else. Yeah. And so then it kind of talks about like Dan's earlier point with this article uh, about governance. Do we need governance at all? You mentioned a point that, you know, governance has no bias, right? And, you know, it could... Make for the most maybe part. less biased. Like I think it's still yeah. You know, there's still people we haven't handed yeah, over governance to AIs people. yet. So, but less of a bias, right? So yeah. the question is then, like, if we want DeFi to move forward, you know, obviously, like I've seen governance throughout different protocols. I've always like slowed things down or broke things to a certain degree. So yeah. I guess the question here is like, do we need governance? Do we want governance? Um, how do we see governance play in the long run when we have like hundreds of millions of users? Where do we see this going? I mean, if we take that exact question, right? Like yeah. the, the specific point there, right? Okay, so there's an existing Oracle. Somehow it got there. We don't know how the decision was made to use that existing Oracle, yeah. but you know, there's an existing Oracle. And now there's a new Oracle that exists, right? That like just was deployed, right? We didn't even think there wouldn't be a new Oracle, but now there is one, right? And it has a set different set of trade-offs and you know, potentially has the, um, you know, the, the, it might be a better Oracle, right? Potentially. Um, and so how do we decide that? In an immutable like governance-less system, you can't. Yeah. You just have your existing Oracle. You plugged it in 10 years ago and it, you know, like it just keeps going, right? Now, like someone needs to make that decision. Some process needs to exist to be able to say, there's a new thing that exists in the world and we want to try it out, right? You know, maybe we don't want to fully migrate, but maybe we want to integrate in some way, right? So you have to be able to choose that. So like that is just governance. Like absent governance, you can't do that. And in the, in the case of this, let's say you didn't have governance, let's say you just had some kind of fork-based governance, right? Which is still governance, but let's say it didn't require anyone to opt in, you just fork the entire thing. That doesn't work with synthetics. There's a finite pool of collateral. If you fork the collateral, then what is that? Like, does it, is it even yeah. real? Like, who wins, right? Like, that's, you know, like, that's a battle that I think would play out very poorly for everyone if we get to, like, synthetics forking over governance, right? So, so ultimately, someone has to make a decision. So what I propose in that article is you could have a CEO, right? Like I could still be the CEO or the director of the you know, Haven Foundation or whatever you know, the role was. And I say, no, I like Sergey. He's a good friend of mine. We work closely together. I trust them. Like we're going chain link. We're not changing. And it doesn't matter what some 
agitator outside of like the you know hierarchy says, we just dismiss them, right? We don't have that in synthetics, thankfully, because you know it would not be good. Um, but you know we've got a different system, which is a whole bunch of people get together and look at it, ideally objectively, right? Um, you know, it, with a, a less bias, right? Certainly not the same personal relationship. You know, the people in the Spartan Council don't have a personal relationship with anyone at Chainlink that I know of, right? And so they were like, hey, we don't care. We're just going to go deploy this other thing. We think it could work. It could be useful. But someone has to, like, there has to be a decision-making process. And I guess my argument is, even though in this case, the decision-making process went in a different direction to what I personally would have done, Right, and made a different you know uh, decision. I still think that process is better. Now, in this particular case, I'm not making a judgment about whether it was the right choice or the wrong choice. But I think in aggregate, DAOs make better decisions than Kane Warwick. That's just my fundamental belief, and I've seen a lot of bad decisions for myself to validate that. So, it'd be hard to challenge that one. What are your thoughts on that, Dan? Because if you are you know projecting a, a, a <laughs> yeah. world where there's no governance. Or minimal governance, like how do you see that play out? I mean, look, I, I think there's there's so much like it depends, right? To uh, to paraphrase our friend Gary, uh, facts and circumstances. <laughs> um, so if you look at like especially like early stage projects, right? I see a lot of teams want to like sprint towards decentralized governance, and I think a lot of that is just due to lack of regulatory clarity and and Probably and, I and fear, right? That a little right? Bit too, I guess, and, and, but. Yeah, but. Ultimately, I think early on when you're still trying to iterate rapidly and the product is evolving and you're trying to find product market fit, man, crowds tend to be really bad at that. It's helpful to have some founders, maybe a small team that is able to quickly make decisions that is not just where disproportionate amount of influence goes to the people who have the most time to make long forum posts, right? And so it's not that it's better to have a centralized decision-making process, or it's better to have a DAO. And by the way, there's people, individuals who make a lot better choices. And there are DAOs that make a lot better choices, but there's a whole spectrum of both. And so you can't really make a blanket statement that one is better than the other. It really depends on the project, what is being governed, where it is in its life cycle, who's involved, what the processes are, all of these things. So it's, I think it's really, really hard to make a blanket statement about it. Yeah. So I guess, I guess what I'm saying is like, you know, in aggregate, in a functional governance system, right? That the decision making process, given the requirement of transparency, and there's trade offs there, right? Like transparency is good in that at least, you know, people have the ability to request information and get it. The problem is in a competitive landscape, that might not be ideal, right? So, you know, that's a, but I'm saying in terms of like getting to the right decision, I think that DAOs, you know, oftentimes if they're, and certainly like I can really only speak for the synthetics DAO, right? Like I'm involved in some other DAOs, but I think the synthetics DAO is somewhat unique, right? Obviously, because we really have leaned into this. It's not governance theater. We actually do let, you know, token holders make decisions via the council. And we've been doing it for years and years. And so, you know, there's a process that kind of works, right? But that said, like, I, I totally agree with you. You know, if we'd had a DAO deciding whether to pivot from Haven to synthetics, I don't know what the decision would have been there at that time, you know, whereas I was the one that was like, guys, we're doing even, even, you know, I know internally, even within the team at the time, people were like, that sounds scary. Like, are you sure? And I was like, well, come with me or you're dead. So, yeah. you know, there wasn't really a choice. It's almost like it's a more extreme version of the 
the dynamics, I think, between startups and kind of like large corporations too, right? Where like startups yeah. are much faster, more nimble. And it's like, oh, not only are you like big and have like kind of bureaucratic processes and stuff, but oh, by the way, all of that is out in the open for all of your competitors to see. So yeah. it's like it it really gives a lot of advantages to some of those those earlier teams. And so I think it part of the decision becomes like, well, how important is the kind of robust decentralization of the protocol? to its continued kind of success, right? To your point about platform risk, mm. there's probably considerably less platform risk building on top of something that is out there, has had decentralized governance. We've seen how that works over time versus some new upstart that maybe come over and like they're offering higher yields or more assets or all these different things. But like, we don't know how they make decisions. We don't know if they'll stay on this course. There's some Lindy that kind of comes along with it because it's slower moving and more transparent in its workings. I think there's another component as well, and this is probably a little bit incendiary or controversial, but as people operating the ecosystem for a long time, we're all kind of shared owners, right? There's this like shared ownership problem, like, you know, Matt Levine talks about this, right? Like the BlackRock owns all the companies and so, you know, whatever. But there's the shared ownership is in the form of Ethereum, right? Within the Ethereum community. Like we all own Ethereum. A lot of the DAOs own, own Ether. You know, we collectively own the Ethereum network, right? And so when we are doing things out in the open that sort of progress the overall ecosystem and it is an open source movement and we you know publish all of our code and we don't have weird proprietary things and patents and all kinds of dumb shit you know ip litigation like all of that stuff allows us to move much faster collectively even if it is not beneficial to like the individual entity right and i've always taken that approach and people have said to me like that's crazy like don't you want to like protect the snx tokens value like what if someone comes and like forks it what i'm like i don't care Right. Like we will keep doing the thing that makes the most sense for us and we'll do it openly and transparently. The reality is it's kind of a trope that like first time founders are like, here's my like 80 page NDA that I'm going to give you to like tell you about my idea. And it's like, no, you idiot. Like no one cares about your idea. Like we're doing other stuff. Right. And so there is some level where it's just like do the stuff, do it out in the open, do, you know, like transparent experiments out in the open and just see what happens. And collectively, the Ethereum ecosystem will get better right like we'll push ahead there and you know we've seen that a lot with synthetics where like people have taken things from within synthetics and gone and use them sometimes to compete with us sometimes in totally different directions right same thing for maker ave you know all of that stuff so it's not a pure capitalist approach i would say because there is this kind of collective ownership and there is a you know sort of uh like element of kind of you know, shared purpose, even with competitors. Like if it turns out that GMX, right, has like some amazing solution that, you know, is some combination of three other protocols that existed before them and they end up dominating, you know, and, and that means that Arbitrum is the place where all of perpetual futures activity happens and it's not happening on centralized exchanges. On some level, I'm okay with that. Like I lost the game, but I, I won, you know, a longer term play. What do you think is the future of DeFi? Dan, you want to take that? <laughs> sure. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I think one, one of the futures that I'm very excited about, I would say the large view that I have on the future of DeFi is that we're going to move towards systems where there is, I think, more explicit layering and how things are constructed. Trade-offs are made a bit more clear. Ultimately, we're moving towards things where there is... I would say almost like lower level 
access to markets in the form of order books and similar tools. Because I think that that if we want to get to the place where we are kind of offering a viable alternative to the traditional financial system, we're going to need to allow more of these power user tools to be available to larger players to come in who are used to having that degree of fidelity with which they kind of price trades and, and interactions and which with which they manage their own risk. And so I think we will see that evolution over time and hopefully we can start designing thoughtfully that way now. But you know, I hope we never lose the wild experimentation that is possible here within the permissionless system. I think that as certain protocols, as certain use cases mature, those will become more hardened and will become safer. And that's where the majority of the value in the ecosystem will lie. But then there will always be these places where, you know, I think there's a a stronger distinction between what's core and what's more peripheral. And that at the periphery, we continue to see wild experimentation that leads to innovation that ultimately matures and gets drawn into the core. Because I think that's how we move forward as an ecosystem and how we create something that we can all be really proud of. Kane, how, how does that how does that fit with you? Where you think we're going? You know, like broadly, I agree, right? Like, you know, I, I think the the permissionlessness and the low barriers to entry are like the ultimate aim of every technology. Right. Like, you know, that's inherently what any ecosystem is trying to build, right, to allow more experimentation. Um, I think we're already seeing, um, you know, exactly what you described in terms of like older protocols, you know, kind of finding some stability, et cetera. I still think it's early days, you know, like we haven't even solved the L2 dilemma of like, where are we going to go and bridging? And, you know, like I think this, you know, each each wave brings its own challenges. And, you know, as you kind of alluded to earlier, now in a bear market is the time to go and backfill some of those things, right? Like in a bull market, it's like uh, you can throw everything out and just like run as fast as you can, right? And now it's like, all right, like what have we dropped? Like let's go back. Was any of it useful? And you know, like let's actually try and figure out like the stuff that we need to fix, right? So I, I very much think that backfilling some of the gaps and some of the the you know tech debt and you know operational debt and all kinds of things are really important. I do think I probably become a bit more cynical over the years. And I think that I've watched enough cycles now to see that the inflow of users at the top of the funnel can very rapidly be kind of siphoned off into a bad place, right? And it doesn't take much. A small amount of friction when you have just millions of users pouring in at the top of the funnel can really end up with an, an outcome that we don't really want, you know, someone stealing billions of dollars from all of them, right? Like that's an outcome I think we'd like to avoid next time around, right? So the thing that I guess I have been thinking about is like this purest approach of like building DeFi or whatever. I'm in a lucky position now where synthetics is fully decentralized. It doesn't require me. It doesn't require a hierarchy at all. It's going and it's doing that thing, right? And so what I've been looking about it and looking at recently is what can I do within the synthetics ecosystem to bridge the gap between, say, a centralized exchange, right, which is, you know, obviously has all of its inherent risks, right, and this pure model of, like, on-chain trading and liquidity and, you know, permissionlessness, et cetera. And so I'm currently working on some thoughts around, like, how do we bridge that gap in a way that has, like, minimal trade-offs but can prevent 
all of these new people that will eventually turn up next year, you know, whenever they turn up, right? Getting siphoned off into some kind of death camp. The next FTX or whatever, the right? Next, yeah. yeah, exactly. The next FTX or, or yeah. whatever it is, right? GTX or something like that. Like, how do we stop that, right? And so, you know, I think the, the key thing is friction is friction. And when you have a lot of users coming in who are new and uneducated and don't know how all these systems work, getting them to bridge to arbitrage or optimism and like, it's going to be hard, right? Like, I, I just think that's what we have last time. So that's, that's where my focus has been. So I think there's this pure path. And I think that there's a lot of people working on that stuff. But I also think that one of the things we left behind that I, you know, when I look back over the last bull market is like, we were taking this purest approach. And other people were like, we don't care about this at all. We're just here to make money or scam people or whatever. And so they built a nice shiny interface and said, hey, you can come and sign up to this. It's super easy and you know, make it as easy as possible. And it worked, right? And so I'm like, hmm, okay, how do we prevent that? How do I compete with that nice new shiny interface next time to, to prevent that from happening or at least you know minimize it, right? Um, and is there a way that you can do that that makes it as easy as possible to onboard people? Because people just want to trade. That's the yeah. first most useful. They just want to trade, right? So when people turn up to trade, how do we have a nice shiny interface where the back end is all decentralized, but the front end is the onboarding process is as easy as possible? And that's that's what I've been thinking about the last like month or so. I love it. I think that that is such a, a huge need. I'm very interested in those and I've seen a few teams kind of working towards versions of this. I think a lot of the folks that are are looking at kind of account abstraction wallets and things that that might enable more of these experiences. One of the things that I'm, I'm very focused on and that uh, our team at Nascent is very focused on is this security piece, because I think the worst case scenario is we get really good at the slick onboarding and we yeah. get more people in with more money and then it all gets lost. Yeah, um, and agreed. so we, we really need to make sure that we, we move those forward in parallel. Agreed. So the future DeFi could be like some is like, how do we get millions of people using this product in a very simple yeah. fashion, right? Yeah. yeah, the back end needs to be this decentralized, permissionless thing. I think for the sh in the shorter term, you know, absent like there's still a whole bunch of challenges, technical challenges that are unsolved, right? And I think you can kind of paper over them a little bit with some trade offs if you're willing to actually make those trade offs. And so I'm kind of putting my hand up to say maybe I'm willing to make those trade offs and just see what happens. Interesting for DeFi founders, right? You know, obviously, we see a ton of applications that come in for for our accelerator program, but we're we're not seeing many for DeFi anymore, and uh, it just brings up an interesting element because the first year uh, when we launched our accelerator program, we've seen like you know hundreds, thousands of startups building the DeFi space, but now all we're seeing is like maybe uh, a twist of a lending product or a twist on a derivative product, and so just diving deeper into Chow's question, which is where are we with DeFi from a product perspective? Uh, is a lot of the innovation done already? Uh, and now we're building iterative products that touch the end user. Or is there more to build in this space that we haven't uncovered yet? I mean, finance is not that complicated, right? Like, you know, banks figured stuff out a while ago, right? Yeah. I think the challenge in DeFi is not what you do, but how you do it. And so there's still a lot of innovation. You know, everything Dan's been talking about is like how you do it. Not what, it's not saying like, let's, you know, build something. It's like, no, just, let's just build a fucking lending protocol, but let's just do it in a better way, right? Like the how you do it is still an unsolved problem. So I think that what I would say 
is it's challenging to turn up as a startup founder, right? And say, hey, guess what? I'm going to compete with Compound or Aave or you know whatever, right? Or I'm going to compete with Uniswap. Like that's a that's a pretty hubristic, you know, approach to life, right? Like, no, no, I've got this. I know what what's happening here. But I think the opportunity is that we are still developing technology every single day, every single week. That if you had known that this was going to exist when you were building Ave, you would build Ave differently. But Ave can't do that. Ave is it's path dependency, right? Like Ave is over here. They they can't just be like, oh, sorry, actually, it turns out that this thing invented last week is way better, and let's just shut the whole thing down. Like it's just you know the innovator's dilemma, right? And so a startup founder who's like wait a second, if I take these three components and I combine them together, I can build a lending protocol that is much more efficient, safer, more secure, etc. Yes, there's going to be a, a fairly in a bear market. It's going to be hard to convince, you know, it's not going to be the easiest thing to convince investors to be like, let's take on Aave, right? But if you're scrappy and small and a team of like three or four people, maybe you only need to raise a couple hundred grand. And there's a couple hundred grand out there for that thing, for yeah. sure. So go out and raise a couple hundred grand, bootstrap it, like actually develop the thing, prove that those technologies do actually combine together to create something that is more efficient than, or, and safer on some dimension better than Aave. And then that's when you can really scale it up, right? But that early stage thing, like go to an accelerator, get the help to like go and do, like that makes sense to me. It's the how, I think, not the what. I strongly agree with that. And I think... Yes, there's just like less investment generally happening in a bear market. Um, but also the gap between zero and where like Ave is today is less than if you started like the peak of the bull market, right? Yeah, and so yeah. I think the opportunity is there for new founders to come in and disrupt some of the incumbent players. And I think there's a couple things that I would point to as like maybe not complete table flip moments, but like close to it. And one of those is the kind of emergence of L2s and specifically application-specific roll-ups and application-specific chains and like how that really changes the design space. And then the other is a lot of the kind of ZK technology that's coming along, which just both of those things point to inherently different architectures. And so I believe both are going to play big roles in the future of crypto. And to be honest, we haven't invested nascent that deeply in like tons of L2s or tons of ZK things. But I think they're very important kind of foundational technologies and things that are that are emerging. And so if you are not building today with those in mind and the future state of the ecosystem and what those technologies will, will enable, then it's going to be really hard to make headway. Yeah. So you have to look at these things that are, again, again, like if you look at the dawn of the iPhone, right? If you're still thinking about like, how do I create a better like website on desktop and not like, oh, what are we going to do for mobile native apps, right? You, you have to look at where the kind of arc of technology is headed and build in that direction. And, you know, like in the crypto ecosystem, it's not like the web, it's not like web two or whatever, or even like, you know, the launch of mobile where like there, you know, it was like once a year Apple would come up with an update that would like change the landscape, or whatever. Like this is like every 20 minutes, there's someone inventing some new thing, right? So if yeah. you stay close to that, the new enabling technology and like disruption that's happening, this like froth of like craziness, you know, um, you have a huge, huge advantage over incumbents. Final question. For founders that are building the space, Dan and Kane, and I'm going to touch on both of your articles here. How should they be thinking about 
the attack surfaces that you mentioned with oracles or, or governance or even contract upgradability, when should they think about governance as they're building out their product? Should they not introduce it? Like maybe just like some tips and points on kind of your thoughts around, you know, security, because security is obviously a very big part of, of crypto adoption, because if a user gets hacked, they'll never come back. You lose that customer forever. And so thinking about this, how do we like frame this in a way where like give founders an easy step into thinking about this from like a framework perspective? So, I mean, there's a lot there. I don't know. There's like an easy framework perspective on, on any of this. Um, I, you know, I think there's a lot of different things. And I think that's why, you know, accelerator programs like Alliance can be so helpful is because you get so many experts around so many of the different things that it's impossible for like one person to have all the knowledge. Even those of us who've been in the, in the industry for years, like we aren't experts in everything. Yep. And there are friends and colleagues that I turn to who are smarter on certain topics. But I would say, generally speaking, take security seriously from day one. And that isn't just like, oh, I'm going to get audited before we like deploy live. Like it's like actually like think about having like security baked into your development process and how are you writing your code? How are you reviewing your code? What are the checkpoints along the way? And Nason has launched a bunch of tools. So maybe- Yeah, yeah. we we put out something called the Simple Security Toolkit, fully open source. It's like literally a collection of like checklists and templates and security best practices, not blog posts, like literal checklists. If you haven't checked all these boxes, you're not ready for an audit. If you haven't checked all these boxes, you're not ready to deploy and get real money in your protocol. And we tried to make it very simple, very easy to understand. We're going to be having a, a, a minor update to it soon with, with a few things that have changed over the last 12 months since we, we initially launched it. But be thinking about those things from day one. I think Ken Dieter um, from Electric Capital wrote a post years ago that I thought laid out a really smart thing, which was looking at what he think he called a guarded launch. Um, yeah. which is to say like basically progressively allow more controls to be handed off, allow more assets to be deposited in, but make it so that the early days of deploying a contract, I still say on mainnet, even though often it's an L2, um, okay. those are super risky times and make sure that like you slowly develop your Lindy and nobody wants the Thanksgiving turkey chart. Mm. I agree with all of that stuff. Um, yeah. I think I would also just add take the opportunity now in the environment that we're in, the market that we're in, to be slower, right? Like, you know, it's really hard to be slow when everyone's running around with their hair on fire in a bull market. You have the luxury now of just doing things in a more methodical fashion, which doesn't necessarily mean that everything will be fine, but it means that, you know, you can take the time to go and read something like, you know, this toolkit, right? Where it's like you probably would be like, oh no, I need to get out there and like get users, you know, my competitors doing this or whatever. So I just think like slow down, chill out, take things, you know, in a methodical way. And, uh, you know, you'll be in a, you have the luxury of doing that now. You probably won't in the future. So appreciate it and, you know, build that into your mindset so that when in the future things are moving faster, you have kind of built up habits and, you know, like internal cultural habits about how you do things that will hold you in good stead in the future. And that will, that will kind of keep you safe. Kane, Dan, thank you so much for your time. And if uh, founders want to reach, uh, reach out or learn more about you guys, how can they uh, reach out? Twitter for me is probably the best bet. Yeah. Twitter. Yeah. Twitter's cool. Twitter's same for me as well. Uh, at Dialitzer uh, on Twitter and at Nascent XYZ as well. Awesome. Thanks so much, guys. 
That was a great conversation. A lot to unpack there. But maybe we could start off with the high level, uh, which is Dan Elitzer stated that he isn't against oracles, right? I mean, obviously, like, you know, when he said DeFi was broken, it was more of like a headline, like, hey, like, read my article. But if you look into the article, and, and then obviously, if you unpack the conversation, there's just uh, a lot to uncover in regards to like how he thinks about oracles, smart contract upgradability, and then more or less governance. On the Oracle side, um, he brought up the layered approach, uh, which is like, you know, you could bring your own Oracles into the different apps that are being built on top of these primitives. And you could still have these live feed Oracles, but it should be, the security of it should be primarily focused on, the, the attack vector should be primarily focused on the app itself versus the primitive. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts about about that. And I know you had a lot of questions around the Oracle attacks itself. And did it help answer your question that you brought up in our intro earlier today? Yes and no. I would say the discussion with Dan really reminded me of this very hot topic, very hot discussion we used to have during DeFi Summer, which is the AMM versus... um, Clobs. They're fun. It's still really relevant today because Dan said something very interesting, which is that he wants DeFi to move into a, a world where there's less parameterization and more market forces. For me, that's exactly the AMM versus clubs um, debate because AMMs are fundamentally highly parameterized, whereas clubs are driven by a large number of independent market participants. So I actually thought that Dan was unbalanced uh, in favor of, of COPS versus AMMs. I'm obviously taking a higher level of abstraction from, from the AMM yeah, versus yeah. COPS uh, discussion. It's, it's a broader point than that. But underneath that, that level of abstraction, there's AMM versus COPS, but there's also blend versus Aave, for example, an yeah. Oracle-less lending platform versus a lending platform that relies on, or, uh, on Oracles. The one that does not rely on Oracles basically replaces the, the dependency on oracles by dependency on a broader number of market participants. To me, it's the same exact idea yeah. between blend and clops. Yeah. So clops is to, to oracle-less lending, what AMMs is to lending platforms with oracles, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, it does. And, and it's not to say that both designs are wrong or right. I think both can coexist. It will ultimately depend on the types of products that are being created and the areas that it's going to serve, right? I still think there's nothing wrong with Aave and Compound, which I don't depends on, okay. on Oracle because they explicitly pick the, the super liquid assets as collaterals. So when you have a very, very liquid asset, those assets are hard to manipulate and, and therefore the Oracles should be fine to me, right? But if you want to build a landing platform where the collateral is the long tail of illiquid assets, for example, NFTs yeah. or a very illiquid fungible token, if you want to use those assets as collateral, then you probably don't want to rely on an Oracle and you need a design that is Oracle-less. It's something that's custom for the exactly. user. Yeah. So both types of design can work and it really depends on the use case. So then, I mean, I agree with that, right? I, I do think like, Without like these RFQ like based systems, RFQ based lending products like Blend, it's really hard for us to get collateral on 
the long tail assets of NFTs or even just NFTs in general. It, it's just too fragmented. If you look at how many communities there are within NFTs, there are over 10,000 communities. And being able to build a structured lending product is just going to be very hard. You you primarily just want to focus on the blueprint, uh, the blue chips. Yep. But the funny thing about the blue chips is that they change over time. Like the, the narratives move so quickly within the NFT communities that it's just very hard to pinpoint what are the blue chip communities? That's right. I mean, if, if you talk about a, a year ago, we we're talking board apes. Now it's me ladies, right? And so I do think that a product like this serves a certain like niche area. And I think that's fine. Wait, what, what did you say that the current blue chip is? Me ladies? Oh, my ladies. Okay. My ladies, my ladies, whatever. And, and, um, and Azuki's and, and stuff. And Azuki's. Yeah. I mean, Azuki was even a part of the conversation last year, right? That's so right. Azuki's yeah. are becoming a part of the blue chip category. And Bored Apes, to be quite frank, is becoming, uh, becoming a little bit of a weird community to be part of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Be, um, be, because the narratives change all the time, they do. the liquidity will change over time. And the quality of the collateral will change over time. So even if the collateral worked in, in the, in the, early days in a system that relies on oracles at yeah. some point it might not be a, a good or a, a collateral anymore yeah so i do think this is great for nfts and then long tail assets of 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 uh of fungible tokens i didn't quite get the problem with governance and contract upgradability exactly i don't know what you got out of it i think governance is still up in the air because and we talked to kane about this uh which is you know if you look at Perf V uh, one, right? He he left. Uh, he left the the synthetics community. He's like, okay, you guys take over. I'm done. And it turns out the product kind of went, you know, downhill. Yeah. He came back, and then V two was launched. He brought the community back, and he was able to kind of put them in the on the straight path. And now, if you look at V two, they're killing it. They're like the number one derivatives platform outside of DYDX, right? Yeah. And so. What he mentioned on this was that, like, you know, you need to have some sort of leader, a benevolent leader. Yeah. But you leave the decisions to the governance. And so he brought up this really good example in his article, was, and, and even in the conversation was, he had a longstanding relationship with Chainlink, and he wanted to go with Chainlink as the, the pull order, the, the hybrid push-pull uh, oracle that they were going to implement to prevent front-running. And Chainlink didn't have the product. Uh, but he really wanted to go with them because he worked with them for four years. But the community wanted to launch a product like tomorrow. And the only product that was available was Pith. So the DAO ended up voting for Pith and against Chainlink, which yep. fractured Chainlink and Kane's relationship. But that brought in $10 million in staking revenue for the holders, right? Yep. And now they're like the number one platform. So what he said was like, you know, although I, I am biased with this relationship, DAOs could be a very good decision-making tool because it doesn't have as much bias as I do as an individual. So he did talk about that. And Dan seems to be on the other end of this. Um, yeah. He seems to think that a very strong leader, aka the CEO, should be able to make better decisions than, than the DAO. Yeah. He was more uh, in that camp, but he also was open to governance, but you know, it was more on the lighter side. And so I, I think where we are in the spectrum is the fact that I think products will be dependent highly on the type of governance. It should be modularized, I think, dependent on the product that you're building. It reminds me of Ethereum a little bit as well. You have Vitalik, which writes a blog post, te super technical blog post on the roadmap of Ethereum once in a while. Yeah. But I don't know if he actually dictates on any of the 
roadmap he writes about. I don't actually know how, how decisions are, are made in the Ethereum actually. Foundation. There's no visibility, for, for me at least. Probably have to join their, their core developer call or something. There's a really good um, researcher at Galaxy Digital. She writes up a weekly, or every time there's an Ethereum dev uh, meetup or, or call, she writes a, a very good summary on it. So for those that are, that are listening, you should definitely check out Christine's uh, article at Galaxy. But yeah, I, I think uh, I think Vitalik has this um, power effect, which is like you write the article and people will automatically start to implement. Yeah, this happened with um, Vitalik's. I, I, I've seen this most recently, which was Vitalik wrote about account abstraction. I kid you not, there was probably like twenty to thirty startups that were built <laughs> within that that week. <laughs> uh, there, there's account abstraction, and there is um, uh, rollups. The, the, no, the soulbound token. Oh my God, SPTs. Oh. <laughs> Within that week, oh my God, I received like, I saw 20 applications. And, and the ideas made zero sense, by the way. Yeah. It was yeah. entirely just a... But so it's like, there's this effect that he has, which is yeah. like people read it and then, you know, people go in and, and self-execute. And maybe that's the power of Ethereum, right? Which is like, if you look at even, if you compare it to Cosmos and, and uh, Ethereum, the reason why Ethereum moves so fast compared to Cosmos is the fact that they have these people that read Vitalik's article and they start to build out the functionality yeah. of Ethereum that needs it. Like rollups, rollups as a service, wallets. And funny you say that because the reason why Solana moves faster in, in Ethereum because Anatoly doesn't write articles. <laughs> he actually writes code. He writes code. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> uh, that's actually very true, right? Like, you know, Ethereum relies on the power of its community and i think anatoly it's really him that's writing this functionality and it obviously is community um but you know um and tend to move faster right like if you think about nft compressions right or compression versus what's happening within the um, ethereum space where you have like validiums and layer twos and all this infrastructure that's built by startups solana built this in-house right more or less so it's, yeah. it's interesting to see that. Any other takeaways? What did you think of their vision of, for the future of DeFi? Okay, so what I got out of like what they the way they answered was like we're in the wait and see moment, right? Like I think there's a lot of stuff coming, but what we need to get right is commercializing the products that we already have and making it better, so we can get more and more people using the product. We don't have enough users, uh, and the products that we do have only fulfill a very small niche. So I think. What I got out of that was like, let's not build derivatives of the product or twists of the same product. It's like making these products even more usable to the everyday user. And that was like the high level conversation. And then the next tier conversation was Kane wants to make synthetics, Quenta, and all of its other products that are being built on top of the synthetics liquidity protocol more usable with account abstraction. There's this conversation around intent networks which we'll talk about this this uh, w within our research podcast in a bit but it, pretty much if you want to sum summarize it's making these products easy to use for everyday people and i think that opens up the floodgate for more users within DeFi because that's the problem that we see today and so space. expanding beyond the crypto native users which yeah i don't know there are maybe 10 million people that order of magnitude magnitude that have a, a MetaMask installed beyond for DeFi. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not Ooh. talking about the active users. I'm talking about mm. the the number of people who who have installed a MetaMask and are ready to to use DeFi. Because 
one of the biggest frictions associated with using DeFi is that you have to install a browser extension and learn the uh, user experience. And it seems like Kane wants to expand beyond that group of users and serve the ones that don't have a MetaMask, don't know how to use a MetaMask. That's exactly right. And it's, it's, it's also interesting to see the synthetics journey, right? From, uh, you know, V1, right? Where he had issues with oracles, he had issues with governance, he had issues with the product itself. And when he came back, he fixed all of these issues, right? And now Quenta is killing it, right? And all the other products that are building within its, uh, within the synthetics ecosystem, they're all doing really pretty well. And so it's very obvious when, when you have product market fit, the next area of growth is, it's, it's growth, customer growth, customer acquisition strategies. And I think what's holding crypto and DeFi back generally is the fact that we don't have enough customers and users that's using the products today. And so um, it's actually refreshing to hear this because everyone's talking about roll-ups and zero-knowledge proofs and real highly technical conversations that the everyday person doesn't understand and they yeah. don't need to understand. But what we should be doing is talking about how do we get more people using crypto today? And so that's kind of the area of focus that that, that he, he spent a lot of time on talking about. What were your thoughts around the latency of oracles? Like, I, I know we, we dug a bit deeper around the front running of oracles, the push versus pull oracles. What were your thoughts around, around that conversation? I'm not an expert, but based on the mechanism he described, Basically, he, he's saying Synthetics now uses a, a pull oracle, meaning the user needs to pull the data and prove that he pulled the data before making a trade, if I understand that correctly. Yeah, it's like a hybrid of um, push and pull. And they add some like um, fractional skew premium on top as well. But even a, a pure pull mechanism, I'm not really sure if you can completely avoid front running. I have to think deeply. I have to do some research and think deeply. But the problem is... When you use crypto, you are relying on a decentralized network of price feed providers. And then you have a counterparty, like someone who, who trades alongside you or trades against you, that uses a, a centralized feed. So that, mm -hmm. that person could be Jump, yeah. which yeah. uses really expensive and really fast. Like By fast, I mean literally close to the speed of light type of in infrastructure to get the price feed. Physically, it's not possible for a decentralized network of price feed to be faster than the centralized feed that, that Jump uses. So my hunch is you can never completely avoid the, the front-running problem. Yeah, if you're going to rely on external feeds, 100%. But th there's an argument that uh, Dan made, if you remember, which is the goal is for, you know, the reason why we rely on external data feeds right now is the fact that that's where the source is, right? I mean, that's where the majority of markets are. But what about in a post-crypto world where the markets are primarily in crypto, right? Yeah, so I actually thought about that. Yeah. The example they give was gold. I didn't yes. mention it during the call, but I don't think... Uh, if you want to trade a, a gold derivatives, you will always need an oracle. You cannot avoid it. Because gold is this physical thing that lives off-chain. You cannot avoid it. If you, if you want to build a derivative on top of gold, you need the price of gold for settlement. Yes. So if you're, if you're a derivative that is cash settled, then you, you need a price oracle for gold that is off-chain. You cannot avoid it. 
If you build a derivative that's physically settled, then you somehow need a facility that you need a uh, an entity that facilitates the settlement of of gold at the expiry of the derivative, right? So person A needs to actually transfer physical gold to person B at the expiry, and that automatically makes this not a protocol because you need a centralized entity to facilitate this. So that that specific example with gold, I don't think what they said will work. Because of gold itself, however, because just for our audience, because most of gold that's being traded is physically settled, is what you're saying. Whether it's physically settled or cash settled, it doesn't work for reasons I described. Or sorry, physically or cash settled. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. But the majority of the trading is ha- happening outside of the crypto space, and because that is happening outside of the crypto space, they determine the price. Even if the majority of trading happens on crypto. On this decentralized gold futures, even if more volume happens in this instrument versus physical gold, which is off-chain,、okay. you still need either a price oracle or an entity to facilitate the physical settlement. That's not avoidable in this particular example. Yeah. Okay. However, the example that could work is if you want to build a derivative on a crypto-native asset. So. A perpetual swap on on Bitcoin or on、okay. Ethereum that could work because all you need to do is to pull the 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 price feed from on chain itself. You don't need to rely on a、yeah. off chain oracle for that. Yeah. So you're bullish on chain, all on chain assets. You're more bearish on off chain price feeds, typically. I'm bullish on our ability to avoid oracles if the instrument is a crypto native instrument. Got it. Which gold is not. Yeah, agreed. I think that's that's a, a good way to contextualize it. Yeah, I think this was a great conversation.、Uh, both Kane and Dan, both OGs in the space, always good to、um, get context around these types of narratives that come up, and for founders that are building in DeFi to think about how they should be either constructing their governance, thinking about oracles and the narratives that come around it, and you know, better be informed so that、uh, you guys are successful. So. Thanks for tuning in.、Uh, hit subscribe if you haven't. Otherwise, we'll see you next time. Thanks. See you next time. Thanks for listening to Good Game. Don't forget to subscribe. We'll see you next week.